Strange Studies of Strange Stories. Once upon a time, in the middle of winter, when snowflakes were falling like feathers from the sky, a queen was sitting and sewing at a window with a black ebony frame. And as she was sewing and looking out the window, she pricked her finger with the needle, and three drops of blood fell on the snow. The red looked so beautiful on the white snow that she thought to herself, If only I had a child as white as snow, as red as blood, and as black as the wood of the window frame. Soon after, she gave birth to a little daughter, who was as white as snow, as red as blood, and her hair as black as ebony. Accordingly, the child was called Snow White, and right after she was born, the queen died. When a year had passed, the king married another woman, who was beautiful but proud and haughty, and she could not tolerate anyone else who might rival her beauty. She had a magic mirror, and often she stood in front of it, looked at herself, and said, Mirror, mirror on the wall, who in this realm is the fairest of all? Is it me? <laughs> if the realm is the room you're in right now, yes, the answer yes, is yes. Yes. For you are alone in that room, which also makes you the coolest. All right. <laughs> we are communicating via the magic mirror of the internet. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Leike. That was the intro to the Brothers Grimm fairy tale, Snow White. And we're talking about it here on Strange Studies of Strange Stories. Our reader today is Michelle Sawyer, a Madison actor and writer, joining us once again. You'll remember that Michelle read The Bloody Chamber by Angela mm. Carter for us, yes. and uh, so is no stranger to the fairy tale. I actually read Angela Carter's version of this fairy tale last night. It's called The yeah. Snow Child. She managed to reduce the story to about a page, and it still made me go, whoa! <laughs> <laughs> Didn't expect that to happen, <laughs> but we'll talk about her version and lots of the other versions at the end of this episode. Thank you so much, Michelle, for reading. Thank you. This is the free show for the month, and we're going to be doing Grimm's Fairy Tales all of December. If you're not a subscriber, please consider giving yourself and us a holiday gift by signing up. Next week, we're doing The Juniper Tree which I also read last night and will have nightmares about for the rest of my life. <laughs> We're going to have Greg Johnson reading on that episode next week. But yes. he's got some holiday offerings I want to talk about right now. Greg wanted us to tell you about his amazing Etsy store. I picked up his newest tree ornament, the Fuffetshu, which is his parody of The Muppet Show. Right. But also in his Etsy, he's done these cool sci-fi prints. The user manual cover for the spacesuit and alien, for Blade Runner, one of the things in Red Dwarf, and the Ghostbusters proton pack. We'll put a link out in the show notes for that stuff. When you're talking about their Fuffetshu crisp red spectrum, that weird <laughs> version of The Muppet Show that Greg does, that is Fuffet spelled P-F-U-F-F-E-T, which reminds me of today's author, the family Hassenflug. That's P-F-L-U-G, fluke. Uh -huh. Now, I know you're going to talk about the Brothers Grimm, and they are technically the writers of this story. They're the collectors of all of these stories. The legend is that they wandered all over Germany, visiting peasant cottages and taking down their stories, writing these things down. It's not really how it was. No. The Grimm brothers lived in Kassel, Germany, K-A-S-S-E-L. They invited various people over and asked them to tell folk tales that they knew. So most of the storytellers were actually educated young women from the middle class or aristocracy. Mm -hmm. I'm getting all of this from the complete fairy tales of the Brothers Grimm, translated by Jack Zipes, 
who uh, also wrote notes and this introduction. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Hassenflug family, particularly the daughters Amelie, Jeanette, and Marie, used to meet regularly to relate tales they had heard from their nursemaids, governesses, and servants. Snow White was told to the Grimm's by the Hassenflug girls for the first 1812 edition of their collection. The story is Schneewittchen in German. This family was very close with the Grimm's, and in fact, their sister married into the Hassenflug family, which had a French background. Many of the tales they provided for the Grimm's, and there were a lot, were actually of French origin because they were descended from Huguenots. So Mm -hmm. these aren't just German folktales. But before we jumped into the Grimm's as authors, I wanted to point out that there are many authors of Snow White. It's a Western European folktale that was given shape via oral tradition. Women telling the tale to other women. Mm -hmm. And then the Grimm brothers are writing it down and shaping it to grab the attention and suit the taste of a middle-class German audience in the early 1800s, which is the written version we end up with. So let's talk about those guys. Who were the brothers Grimm? Jakob Ludwig Karl Grimm was born in 1785, and his younger brother, Wilhelm Karl Grimm, was born a year later in 1786. Their father, Philip Grimm, got a sweet job in 1791, and they moved to Steinau. That's near Kassel, basically in the middle of modern Germany. There were six Mm -hmm. children in the family. However, when Jacob was 11, their father died of pneumonia, which sank the family into poverty. Jacob, at 11, was forced to take on the role of the head of the household. Their aunt and grandfather helped with expenses. Jacob always remained in that role, or Jacob. Wilhelm married and had a family later, but Jacob, he lived with Wilhelm's family. After school, the brothers went to the University of Marburg together, and they were very close. They were inseparable, slept in the same bed together, even, I read. (laughs) (laughs) Kept the same scholastic schedule. They really should have recruited one of their younger brothers to sleep in the bed with them and round out the comedy team. (laughs) Feels like they needed a curly grim. Part of their studies got them interested in German folklore. Jakob was still responsible for his family, so he took a job at the Hessen War Commission. Castle and these cities are in the German state of Hesse. Hence Hessian. You know, Hessian soldiers in America were coming up when we were discussing Sleepy Mm -hmm. Hollow in October. So if you listen to this show... You know that Hess's major exports are fairy tales and headless horsemen. In 1808, Jakob was able to get a sweet gig as the court librarian for the king of Westphalia. After their mother died, Jakob had to take over the family himself and pay for Wilhelm. Should I say Wilhelm or Wilhelm? Well, I'm Americanizing it by saying Jacob and Wilhelm because I'm probably not going to pronounce the rest of this stuff in German. So however you want to do it, I think is fine. <laughs> Around this time, Jakob started to collect folklore tales, but was so busy, he wasn't in a position to do anything with them. Eventually, Wilhelm joined Jakob as a librarian. There's a lot more, and we can continue the bio on the Brothers Grimm over the month. The more I read, the more I realize that the Heath Ledger Brothers Grimm movie is way off. <laughs> it gets a lot of stuff wrong. But the methodology of the Grimm's is fascinating to me. And one last thing I wanted to point out in terms of the origins of these stories, the Grimm brothers were law students together at the University of Marburg, as you said, and they were less advantaged than their peers. So they really worked hard to prove themselves. And they caught the attention of Professor Friedrich Karl von Savigny, the founder of the historical school of law. And Savigny's belief was that the spirit of a law can be comprehended only by tracing its origins to the development of the customs and language of the people. And by paying attention to the changing historical context, in which the laws develop. I find that really fascinating. It's still an area of study, a very alive debate. Do we follow the letter of the law or consider the context in which it was written? Right. It was in assisting Savigny in this effort that the brothers got started on collecting German folklore. And the beginning intention was to help understand historical customs, historical language, 
Oh, yes. So that we can know why they were making the laws that they were making. Right. This version of the story comes from Kinder und Hausmarken, Children's and Household Tales, first published in 1812. Later editions would be different, allowing the brothers to change bits of the stories that people weren't thrilled about. The book wasn't an immediate success. Of course, now it's one of the best sellers of all time and second only to the Bible in Germany, at least. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. That's awesome. <laughs> Your reaction to that was like, as if I told you, you know, I got Quincy Jones liked my comment on Twitter. You know, <laughs> wow, good for them. Good for the Grand Brothers. No way. Second to the Bible? That's amazing. That's pretty big. It is. That's that's big. Good job, guys. <laughs> <laughs> the story begins pretty much as it's commonly known. Snow White's mother dies after having her. Her father gets remarried giving Snow White a wicked stepmother. In the first edition of the story, the queen that is jealous of her daughter is actually the biological mother, Mm -hmm. which is extra messed up. The translation we're reading by Jack Zipes is a translation of the last edition the brothers produced, and they did seven editions total. In that same Zipes book, there's included a less ornamental version of the story by Jacob Grimm alone, Mm. in which it is the biological mother. And we can guess that this is the story the Hassan Flug women told them. This whole project started when a folklorist called Clemens Brentano, who had already published work in the field, reached out to the Grimms because he knew they collected folk tales as part of their law work. Right. They put a bunch together to send him. So these are bare bones. Brentano didn't do anything with them. So they decided to make it into their own book. So in reading the original Snow White that Jacob sent to Brentano, they haven't done any rewrites for an audience yet. And it's probably closer to what the women told them. And when they told them this, it was not an evil stepmother. That was Snow White's mother. I've read that the brothers said that there was a sanctity of motherhood that they wanted to preserve. Makes sense. That brings us to this wicked stepmother asking the magic mirror if she's the fairest. And the mirror says, oh, yes. In the Disney film, the 1937 Disney film, the queen is even more evil because there is some entity in the mirror that has to do this bidding. And right away, she says, slave. Oof. Come to me, tell me who the fairest is. Even another layer of let's make the queen unlikable. The mirror tells the queen that she is the fairest until Snow White turns seven. Then the mirror says, hold up, you're not the fairest anymore. Mm-hmm. And I got to say seven is gross. Well, I'd yes. like to think that they mean non-sexual beauty, but the comparison to an adult leaves me feeling yucky. The illustrations that were in the book have her looking to be a young adult. You know, obviously she gets married at the end of it, so... Some time has passed, maybe from this point on to later on, but it doesn't seem that way. And there's no real indicators that there is. So it's still yucky. Snow White is typically aged up in media for that very reason. But in the medieval society, at seven, she would not be too far from marrying age. It does tell you something about the culture the story is coming from. Thinking about the mirror, is it really magic? Is the queen maybe looking at her image and judging herself? If we stick with the original story in which this is the biological mother, it starts with her staring through a window, another Mm -hmm. framed pane of glass, but at the world and imagining creating a beautiful life. Then later, when staring into a mirror, she realizes, oh, no, that beauty means I'm going to be replaced. I've made a huge mistake. Mm, So it's like the external. Yeah, this is what humanity is supposed to do. And then the internal. Oh, no. She's here to take my job. The queen hates Snow White for this. The kid did nothing wrong. No. The queen calls in a huntsman and tells him to take Snow White out into the woods and kill her, bring back her lungs and liver as proof. She just leaves her out in the woods in the original tale. There's no huntsman. Yeah. She goes, hey, can you pick one of those roses outside of the carriage there? 
And Snow White's like, yeah, sure. Steps out. She goes to the carriage driver, hit the gas. And they just cheese it. <laughs> Leave her there. The huntsman takes Snow White out into the woods and he's going to kill her. But she pleads for her life and then he takes pity on her. He kills a boar and brings back its liver and lungs. He doesn't save her, though. He no. goes, well, she's going to die out in the woods anyway of exposure or an animal will get her. I'm just relieved I don't have to do it. Yes. He's no hero, the huntsman. The queen orders the lungs and liver boiled in salt, and then she eats them. Again, cannibalism is a big motif in a lot of these stories. Part of it, too, is that idea that if she eats these organs, that she's going to absorb the beauty of Snow White somehow by eating her internal organs. I think that's right. But what happens is she becomes a boar. Oh, no! Yeah, because <laughs> oh, she didn't man. know. She thought it was Snow White. No, that doesn't happen. There is another story that I read in here called Snow White and Rose Red. Yes. That is about a different Snow White, but it has a werebear in it. So, you know, you're not too far off. No, no. Now, in the Disney movie adaptation of this, they went with a heart instead of the lungs and the liver. And the queen kept it in a box and she didn't eat it. I do know in the ancient world, the liver was often thought of as the seat of the soul and intelligence. So in a lot of ways, it was the original heart. Mm. The liver was the OG heart. Snow White is frightened by the woods and she runs off until she finds a little cottage in the movie she sits there and cries until she sees the friendly animals and then she starts laughing and they sing a song together it really comes off like she's just broken with reality and is <laughs> hardcore hallucinating <laughs> inside the cottage are seven little plates on a table seven little beds she finds some food and she eats it finds some wine and drinks it, and then she craps out. There are elements of Goldilocks and the three bears in this. She tests the beds until she finds one that is just right. I do want to point out that it says the cottage is indescribably dainty and neat. And in the 37 movie, the dwarves are pigs. Yeah. The place is a total wreck. They've actually never taken a bath before <laughs> and are confused by water. So it's like a people under the stairs situation that she walks into. I actually think the fairy tale in this case is less frightening than the really disgusting dwarves in the movie. The dwarves come back home. It's said that they were searching for minerals in the mountains with their picks and their shovels. Hardworking little men, not threatening in any way to her or anybody. They're supposed to be benevolent, these creatures. Mm -hmm. Even though in other versions of the stories, they're actually robbers. Hmm. They're thieves. Myths and legends around dwarfs come from old Norse mythology. There's a mm -hmm. lot of conflicting stories of the actual nature of what a dwarf is. Some have them as spirits, while others have them as physical beings. There are four dwarves that hold up the sky from the prose Edda. So you would think that they would need to be big to hold up the sky, but then the sky meets the horizon, so not necessarily. Right. There's a lot of debate about what exactly a dwarf is. But in this story, they just seem to be small people with no magical powers of any kind. The Hobbit actually came out in 1937, the book, same mm -hmm. year as Disney's Snow White. Oh, so right. it was like a magical dwarf crazy <laughs> time. You know, that it was like swing in the 90s with dwarves <laughs> that year, I guess. Back home, the dwarfs see their stuff has been messed with. We get, like you said, the Goldilocks bit. Who's been sitting in my chair, said the first dwarf. Who's been eating off my plate, said the second dwarf. Who's been eating my bread, said the third. So on until they all get to say something. Through all seven dwarfs, yeah. Yes. There's a playfulness and repetition to these sections that are hallmarks of children's literature. Although there's a lot of ink shed on how these fairy tales may not be suitable for children. Folks should understand that that wasn't the intended audience initially. This is no. a scholastic book collecting folk tales more or less as they're told means there's a lot of blood and guts and baseness yeah. in them. And it's up to you to curate what you read out of the volume to your children. The dwarves find Snow White sleeping in their house and are shocked. But since she's such a beautiful child, they take pity on her. And I can't help but think, what if she was ugly? But she's so beautiful, they decide to let her sleep. 
and they do this, which made me laugh. They were so delirious with joy that they did not wake her up. Instead, they let her sleep in the bed while the seventh dwarf spent an hour in each one of his companions' beds until the night had passed. <laughs> which is so illogical of a plan. Yeah. He could not have gotten a good night's sleep if he had to wake up and switch beds every hour. Every hour? And that must have caused a commotion in the room. Oh, boy. But in the original one, uh-huh. that didn't happen. He just shared a bed with the sixth dwarf. He did the reasonable thing, which means oh, right, this yeah. was an addition to make it more sing-songy and fun for an audience, I guess. Yeah. But I love that that seems almost like it's a crazy thing that was introduced through folklore. And no, that was a single author. <laughs> One of the Grimms decided to do that. When she awakens, the dwarves ask her the 411 and she tells them the whole tale. They agree to let her stay with them if she works for them. Yeah. If you'll keep the house for us, cook, make the beds, wash, sew and knit. And if you'll keep everything neat and orderly, you can stay with us and we'll provide you with everything you need. And Snow White makes no attempts to negotiate with them. Feels like they're really taking advantage of this kid to me. However, some of the footnotes I read said that at age seven, kids start to work in this time period. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's really not out of the ordinary for a seven year old to be doing all this stuff. I do think there is also a universality to this. You're born. Hopefully you spend childhood protected and cared for it. But then you're shoved out into the woods for to fend for yourself when you're a young adult. Yeah. And suddenly you're doing menial work, wondering what happened. So they have their setup. The dwarves would go out to work for the day. Snow White would do the domestic work at home. The dwarves know that eventually the queen's going to figure out that she's not dead and come for her. So they warn Snow White, do not let anybody in. Here's an example of the kind of sentence you just get used to while reading Grimm. Since the queen believed she had eaten Snow White's liver and lungs, she was totally convinced that she was again the most beautiful woman in the realm. <laughs> Taken out of context, that is an insane sentence. But when she goes to the mirror, she's in for a rude awakening. Mirror, mirror on the wall, who in this realm is the fairest of all? The mirror answered, You, my queen, may have a beauty quite rare, but beyond the mountains where the seven dwarfs dwell, Snow White is thriving. And this I must tell, within this realm, She's still a thousand times more fair. Ooh, a thousand times? Dang! Snow White is not dead and the queen can't have it. So she does some special makeup effects. (laughs) There's no spell in this as she does in the the movie. She drinks a potion to make herself into the hag. She just puts on some makeup, puts a wig on, and that's it. She's an old woman. I never really watched the Disney movie growing up. On this recent viewing, I realized I didn't like it because of all the dwarf stuff Mm -hmm. a lot of pro bath taking propaganda in my opinion (laughs) let's just say that but the scenes with the queen are amazing animation wise and style and i mean her transformation into the old woman is the best part of the movie but again something makes more sense in the original fairy tale that she uses a disguise because in the movie she uses the magic to even change her clothes to rags which seems like overkill yeah. But I guess she didn't want anybody to see her shopping. <laughs> I can't see a reason for it otherwise. But the first ingredient in her peddler's disguise recipe, mummy dust. <gasps> a little mummy for the tummy and so much more. The queen easily finds the cottage and knocks on the door, saying, pretty wares for sale, pretty wares. Snow White talks to her through the window to find out what she's selling. Stay laces in all kinds of colors. Is a stay lace a lace for a corset or is it the whole corset? I tried to 
figure this out. And it's, I think it's a bit of an antiquated term, so I'm not sure. I had the same issue. My guess is that it's the lace and the corset is the stay, because I can't imagine the old woman is carrying a bunch of corsets with her. The old woman says, let me in and I'll lace you up right. Snow White thinks that this old woman seems safe, so she ignores the advice of the dwarfs and lets the queen in. A lesson for kids? Stranger danger is all over these stories. Snow White did not suspect anything, so she stood in front of the old woman and let herself be laced with the new stay lace. However, the old woman laced her so quickly and so tightly that Snow White lost her breath and fell down as if dead. I didn't see that coming. Uh-huh. That tactic. In the movie, she cooks up the apple plot right away, but here there are multiple assassination attempts. Yep. And this one has a bondage element. The queen assumes Snow White is dead, gloats over her body for a bit, and then runs off. The dwarfs come home, find Snow White unmoving, decide to cut the lace, and she begins to breathe again. So the queen is like, all right, now I'm the fairest. Mirror, tell it to me. And the mirror says, nope, Snow White's still alive. and She's still way better looking than you. Yeah, this is a Roadrunner Coyote bit of this story I, I didn't know about. The queen needs a new plan. By using all the witchcraft at her command, she made a poison comb. Then she again disguised herself as an old woman. Is it a different old woman or is it the same old woman? <laughs> I don't think Snow White is that naive. I could be wrong, but my guess is it's a different old woman, which means she's got a really good disguise kit. Yeah. The old woman shows up and Snow White says, I for sure can't let anybody in after what happened last time. The old woman says, I've got this beautiful comb. You just have to take a look at it. Where's the harm in that? And Snow White falls for it again. That's the queen in. <laughs> they haggle over price for the comb for a bit. Uh -huh. She says, well, here. Let me comb your hair for you. It looks like it hasn't been done correctly in a long time. But no sooner did the comb touch her hair than the poison began to take effect, and the maiden fell to the ground and lay there unconscious. The queen again gloats over the body and runs off. The dwarves find Snow White, pull the comb out of her hair, and that saves her. What a crappy poison comb. Thank God we live in the modern era with reliable poison combs. But there are tons of things that you could poison somebody with that would just kill them right away. That's true. So why did she go to all this effort, make this magic poison comb that, if removed, would bring the person back to life? She's doing a murder for the first time. You, they didn't have media like we do these days. There That's was no true. true crime or you know television yeah. to inform her on ways to poison and murder people. I'm being too harsh. You're I'm being too harsh, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. The queen comes back, asks the mirror, and gets the same answer. She exclaims, Snow White shall die, even if it costs me my own life. Wow. Finally, we get to the poison apple. Rinse and repeat. She went into a secret and solitary chamber where no one else ever went. Once inside, she made a deadly poisonous apple. On the outside, it looked beautiful, white with red cheeks. Anyone who saw it would be enticed, but whoever took a bite was bound to die. There's obvious Garden of Eden imagery with the apple, but mm -hmm. it's also curious that the apple is white with red cheeks, just like Snow White. Yeah. And so it's almost like finally the thing that works is a taste of your own medicine. Here's the poison that's poisoning me. This time, Snow White is a bit more skeptical and won't take the apple. The old woman says, it's not poisoned. It's funny that she brought that up because Snow White didn't suggest that it was. Right. <laughs> so she cuts the apple in half, the red part and the white part. The old woman takes the white part gives it a bite and gives Snow White the red part. Of course, the red part is the poison part, the white part is not. So 
Snow White mm-hmm. bites the apple. The queen gloats again, this time saying that dwarfs can't help her. The queen stared at her with a cruel look, then burst out laughing and said, White as snow, red as blood, black as ebony. This time the dwarves won't be able to bring you back to life. And I thought that was a callback to her ideating having this child. Mm-hmm. I would love a child with skin as white as snow, red as blood, hair as black as ebony. So it seems like kind of a holdover for when she was the biological mother that she would mm-hmm. reference this. Because how else would she have access to that story? All right, of course. The queen goes back and asks the mirror, and this time she gets the answer she wanted. It worked. The queen is the fairest of them all. Yay! Her jealous heart was satisfied as much as a jealous heart can be satisfied. And I think that's where we put a point on the uber theme of the story here. Yes, fear of replacement is relatable. That's kind of what hooks you in. Mm. But the lesson is more that jealousy that springs from this will destroy you. Even if you destroy the object of your jealousy, you will never be comforted. The dwarves return and find Snow White's body. They unlaced her, combed her hair, washed her with water and wine. But it was to no avail. The dear child was dead and remained dead. They wept for three whole days. The dwarves can't stand the idea of burying her, so they make a glass coffin and carry her to the mountaintop. From then on, one of them always stayed by her side and guarded it. Some animals came also and wept for Snow White. There was an owl, then a raven, and finally a dove. Snow White lay in the coffin for many, many years and did not decay. Indeed, she seemed to be sleeping, for she was still as white as snow, as red as blood, and her hair as black as ebony. Poe is like, go on. (laughs) Appears dead, you say? I thought the choice of animals was interesting. And so, of course, I read about it a little yeah. bit. An owl, a raven, and a dove. The author, Ronald Murphy, points out that the owl is a powerful symbol in Greek mythology, you know, with Athena. Uh-huh. The raven in Norse mythology with Odin. And the dove in Christianity. Ah. So making this story some kind of synthesis of these three beliefs. That's great. I wondered what those birds were all about themselves. Was too lazy to look it up, so I'm glad you did that. But (laughs) but what about the dwarves putting her in the glass case? What's that about? Just want to preserve her, but why do they display her? I guess because she's so beautiful that they want to look at her still. Yeah. I don't know how they don't know that she isn't going to rot. She doesn't rot. They didn't know that. The queen. Now, she actually knows in the movie that the apple is only going to make Snow White unconscious, but she counts on the dwarves to bury her alive. Oh, wow. That's what she wants to happen. A prince shows up and wants to buy the coffin, which is weird to me, but the dwarves, they won't sell it. He wants to own this beautiful thing, but the dwarves say it's not for sale, not for all the gold in the world. Then give it to me as a gift, the prince said, for I can't go on living without being able to see Snow White. I'll honor her and cherish her as my dearly beloved. Since he spoke with such fervor, The good dwarfs took pity on him and gave him the coffin. The prince ordered his servants to carry the coffin on their shoulders, but they stumbled over some shrubs, and the jolt caused the poisoned piece of apple that Snow White had bitten off to be released from her throat. It was not long before she opened her eyes, lifted up the lid of the coffin, sat up, and was alive again. Lord, where am I? She exclaimed. The prince rejoiced and said, You're with me. And he told her what had happened. Then he added, I love you more than anything else in the world. Come with me to my father's castle. I want you to be my wife. 
Snow White felt that he was sincere, so she went with him, and their wedding was celebrated with great pomp and splendor. Now Snow White's stepmother had also been invited to the wedding celebration, and after she had dressed herself in beautiful clothes, she went to the mirror and said, Mirror, mirror on the wall, who in this realm is the fairest of all? The mirror answered, You, my queen, may have a beauty quite rare, but Snow White is a thousand times more fair. The evil woman uttered a loud curse and became so terribly afraid that she did not know what to do. At first, she did not want to go to the wedding celebration, but she could not calm herself until she saw the young queen. When she entered the hall, she recognized Snow White. The evil queen was so petrified with fright that she could not budge. Iron slippers had already been heated over a fire, and they were brought over to her with tongs. Finally, she had to put on the red-hot slippers and dance until she fell down dead. What? Wow. What was that about? That's insane. The last three sentences are just nuts. She was so petrified with fright she couldn't move. Mm-hmm. Well, why is she afraid? Is she afraid that she's going to get busted? Yeah, like, did she understand? She goes, oh, I've been invited to this wedding. There's a new queen. And also, Snow White isn't dead, but she doesn't know it's the same person, maybe? Is that what's going on? Snow White was ready with some iron slippers. Yes. And then now you got to dance until you die. And she does. And it's in the older version as well. This is an important part of the story. That is how the original version told by the sisters ends. There's no kiss. There's no romantic thing. It's just clumsy servants. That made me laugh out loud. At the end, these clumsy unnamed servants were the heroes. (laughs) They just kind of tripped and it solved the whole thing. Wow. Random. But look, the queen attempted to kill Snow White three times. So this Mm -hmm. is her punishment. Yeah. Meet it out in public at a wedding. I think that there are punishing shoes. That's a real thing. They were used during the Inquisition metal shoes uh, that were a torture device of some kind. I'm not sure if they were heated. But I thought the heated shoes were maybe a contrast to the snow and cold imagery of the beginning. Yeah. Despite that contrast, Snow White has kind of just become an even worse wicked queen because of what was done to her, I guess. I mean, literally the day, literally on her wedding day, the day she becomes queen, she celebrates by doing this to her, this other queen. I don't know if it's another queen or if she's succeeding her or what the deal is. Right. But that's how she celebrates. Reading this story made me think of the old 1987 show, The Charmings, where it was a sitcom of Snow White and Prince Charming and their two kids, and they lived in the suburbs. Do not remember that. Yeah, it was terrible. It was a bad show, but of course I watched it. (laughs) And there's so much media spun off from Snow White. It's impossible to mention all of it. Oh. One of the things I've read fairly recently was Neil Gaiman's graphic novel, Snow Glass Apples, a story from the Queen's perspective. And it's about how Snow White, when she was born, was like this creepy child and like a vampire and did all this horrible thing. So it's about her trying to defeat this evil child that's i read that as well and it was a really cool graphic novel i think that neil gaiman was i think there was a short story first and that the comic is a newer adaptation of it oh i see snow white's a monstrous vampire type 
And the prince is a necrophiliac. Oh, right. Who yeah. shows up, and that's why he likes Snow White, because she appears to be dead. She's a prince, and but that's right. They yeah. get together and embark on their campaign to destroy the queen. And Angela Carter's story, back to what I said at the beginning, yeah, yeah. has that necrophiliac angle in it as well, a bit. Oh, yeah. Now, you were telling me that there's a story called Silver Tree that's an old Scottish version that has a lot of these. Gold Tree, Silver Tree. And that has a lot of the same motifs. And Yeah, there was a trout in a well instead mm-hmm. of a magic mirror that was asked, you okay. know, who's the fairest in the land. And the Gold Tree is the daughter, Silver Tree is the mother. It's another story about jealousy and follows the same beats. It sounds yes, like. yeah, yeah. And it's got a prince in it, although, you know, the prince is kind of like not important to the plot in the original story as it's told. No. It's actually Snow White's father who shows up and rescues her from her death-like trance. And at the end it goes, well, then she marries a prince who's pretty cool. And it's <laughs> the prince is there as a mechanism to introduce the wedding day that she's going to make the queen dance around in red hot shoes at. So yes. that's really his job. He's not as important. It's She's not necessarily pining for some prince as she is in the Disney film. Yeah. I want to say thank you to our reader, Michelle, for bringing life to the story. She's always so great. Thank you so much, Michelle Sawyer. Thank you, Michelle. And next week, as I said, we're going to cover the juniper tree. We're going to be doing Grimm's Fairy Tales all month, so please stick with us. I want to thank our stakers for making this free episode possible. The king of all snakes. Thank you. Thank you, crypto cartographer. I want to thank Alistair Brooks. The twins, as always. Thank you to the <laughs> twins. Boss Coffee. Thank you. Angelina Brown. Thank you. Eric S. Malone, MD. Thank you. Richard Wolf. Thank you. And lastly, Ben A. Your treasure. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in, everybody. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to Strange Studies of Strange Stories. Ah!